0: I'm Benjamin Pollard with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for July 30, 2022. Since its invasion of Ukraine, Russia has drastically reduced free speech, blocking Russian citizens' access to foreign news outlets and Facebook. Censorship of Russian news organizations has also increased, as President Vladimir Putin seeks to retain command over the narrative of the war at home. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from March 20th, 2018, in which Alina Poyakova sat down with Lisa Sinetska to talk about media censorship in Russia and how Putin's government reacted when Sinetska, a former editor of an independent news source in Russia, began covering the Panama Papers.
2: Alina Poyakova, and you're listening to the Russia Series on the Lawfare Podcast, March 20th, 2018. Joining me on the podcast is Liza Sidnitskaya, an independent Russian journalist and founder of The Bell, a new news site to help us all understand the real Russia today. Before launching The Bell, Lisa worked for many years in Moscow as editor-in-chief of Russian Forbes and RBC, an independent Russian media organization. She experienced firsthand the Kremlin's clampdown on in independent media in her country, a repressive policy that Putin will continue to pursue now that he's been installed for another six years at the helm of Russia. I spoke with Liza right before her country's elections last Sunday. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 293, Liza Asetnitskaya on Journalistic Freedom under Putin. So you know, for, those, for those of our uh, listeners who you know, don't know about the Russian media space and the role you played in it, can you tell us a little bit more about what you did in Moscow until 2016?
3: RBC was a tiny newswire in uh, 1995 when I first time joined this company as a news reporter. So I went to economic faculty of university, but in my view, it was incredibly boring science. <laughs> so I decided to become a journalist and found this job. So then I made a lot of various steps that finally brought me to the Vietnamese newspaper that was established by Financial Times and Wall Street Journal together. Very unique case for for the world was that happened only in Russia. And I built my entire journalism career in this newspaper. With this newspaper, I grew up from energy reporter to editor-in-chief and then I moved to digital site. I spent overall 12 years with the newspaper before I moved to Forbes, Russia. It was also a very popular magazine and it still Mm -hmm. exists even under these tough conditions. And then I worked about three years as editor-in-chief of Forbes magazine and then I was invited to restructure operations at this RBC company that grew up in a huge media let's say, business news empire. And that was a fascinating job. It was very challenging. I oversaw all editorial operations from Newswire to print and print magazine and print newspaper. And I joined the company in 2014, and it was a very tough year for journalism and free press in Russia because there was a time when Russia started invaded Crimea and then invaded east of Ukraine and started actually fighting with the West uh, because I think um, ideologically it was not a conflict with Ukraine but was a conflict with the United States and Ukrainian territory mm-hmm. or at least an ideological conflict. And most of independent journalists who were able to work in Russia till that time Most of independent journalists were considered by Kremlin, by authorities as, not as independent, but as uh, representatives of anti-state power, confronting power, wherever it came from. And there was a time when the government started working against foreign ownership in media industry, and finally it was banned in 2015. That's how foreign shareholders had to leave their assets in Russia.
2: This was part of this foreign agent's law? No, it was a different law. Mm -hmm. Foreign
3: agent uh, law came later. It was a law that said that uh, foreign companies are not allowed to own more than 20% of any media entity, and people who have foreign citizenship or any type of living permit are not able to run any media company so there was rule changing law because publications that were owned by foreign companies they were truly independent and they in my experience they were never run by you know any pro-government u.s government or any government british government organizations it was very high quality journalism and but it was not controlled by authorities, uh, by Kremlin. And there was a problem at the time of ideological conflict between Russia and the West that has started that time. In
2: 2014? In
3: 2014. So I'm giving you a landscape and the, uh, the environment in which I jumped as editor of this huge organization and it was an entire russian organization so it belonged to russian shareholder tycoon michael prokhorov mm-hmm. who still owns brooklyn nets that's right uh, in new york uh, but he's about to sell it according to media publications and we i had exciting 2 years in this organization so we changed the operations i mean we improved quality and reduced you know eliminated let's say, paid publications, and there were some corrupt publications. So we improved the quality of journalism, and we also started uh, investigative reporting. And now it, I can say that we blew uh, against the wind, so it was really <laughs> uh, not wise in terms of maybe business, but for journalism there is no such, such choice. I mean, you either do journalism or you don't do journalism. <laughs> there is only one uh, option. And we produce few reports that I think we can be honored. There was reporting about uh, troops in Ukraine. There were stories about uh, Putin's family business. It was in two parts. And but finally, what put us in trouble? So there was a publication about Panama Papers leak. It was strange because we were not a part of investigative consortium, but we produced something on our own. But the information started leaking that Panama Papers are going to be released. And then we distributed Panama Papers also through all our channels. And as the company was so big and influential, the information came out. And that caused a lot of troubles for the company, this reporting and, and this publication. And finally, we had to, our journalism team had to leave the company and just before that i applied the fellowship in the united states new journalism fellowship and that's how i landed at stanford first stanford university and spent a wonderful year with the jsk knight fellowship where i worked out the idea of my project for russian people so the project is called the bell and I know you already promoted it a little yes, bit. Yes, we've
2: talked me. about The Bell on the podcast. So um, I'm so happy to know that. <laughs> Thank you. We're bearing the lead a little bit here because you, of course, are the founder of this, I think, newest independent Russian publication that is reporting news on Russia, from Russia, and about Russia.
3: Exactly. So uh, how we started The Bell... So for me, it was important that despite of this conflict with the West and obvious confrontation with the West, it was important for me that there are still global-minded, westernized or easternized Russians who want to live in alignment with the world and who definitely get the benefits from integration and globalization. And this is a whole generation that grew up in 2000 or in the end of 90s. And those people uh, benefited from Russia, emerging Russia in 2000, from the growth of the country. That was fueled by oil prices, but this is nothing bad about it. So the country passed through tremendous success at that time. But those people, they... They didn't disappear, and they're still here, but they feel completely lost. And the mission of the bell is to become a thought partner for them, to give them a tool and uh, opportunity to live in alignment, uh, in information, at least information alignment with the world, to provide information from the world to them and from them to the world. This is like... I'm talking about more about mission statement, of course, because when you do it in practice, every, on an everyday basis, there are a lot of, you know, fluctuations from the, the tunnel, but we are trying.
2: You brought up a few interesting themes that I think we should dig into a little bit more. One, you know, I should mention that RBC did some really hard-hitting investigative reporting when it came to the conflict in Ukraine, and you talked about it a little bit, but certainly it was it was quite dangerous to report on the presence of Russian soldiers or little, little green men, so to say, in the Ukrainian conflict, because clearly the, the government line at the time, and still remains this way, is that there were no Russian soldiers in, in eastern Ukraine. So independent journalists, especially Russian independent journalists who are reporting on this, I think put themselves at risk. Was that the sense that you had when you were working on these stories, that this was Reporting on this was a life risk that you were willing to take at the time and your staff was willing to take at the time.
1: I
3: think it was more risky for the company than for journalists because journalists were in some way protected by the organization they work for. And uh, they always could say, like, we are working because our editorial team decided to focus on this issue. So the question, basically you're asking me about how Russian censorship is working. And it works different from places where censorship is legal. In Russia, it's not allowed by constitution and it doesn't exist in direct way. This is very indirect. There is a lot of pressure on journalists, but sometimes government doesn't know that journalists work on certain issue, and you approach them, let's say, after you collected some information. So you use your sources the same way, like it works in Free World. The difference is when it comes to a publication and it comes to the editor, in some cases when the message is really dangerous and the editorial board understands the sensitivity of the issue then it depends on the editorial board how strong it is and how close the board will report to management because this is always a trade off between management and and the editorial and you, you can observe it in you know in american movies like the post the genius mm-hmm. the genius film that tells the story about relationships between editorial and managerial part and in the movie the owner let's say took the positive side It's hard under pressure to take a positive side in Russia for Mm -hmm. owners and the managers. So this is a way how pressure works. So Kremlin or the government communicate their worries or their disagreement or their desire to eliminate publication or just to close the issue (laughs) through management or through the owners. And then owners and managers should solve problems, let's say, in quotes, problems with journalists. But sometimes it comes after publications. That's how it happened with publications about Russian troops in Ukraine. So the troubles came after publication. Mm-hmm. So, of course, authorities, some people in, in power were pissed by the publication, and we knew that. But we were able to publish it. And I have to admit and give a favor to this company I used to work for, RBC, that uh, after we left, they still were able to publish certain important stories. For example, they revealed a huge story about how Troll Factory operated. Yes. So that was the uh, most recent investigation. I wouldn't say they were able to produce those stories often on regular basis. And what I'm worrying about that there are fewer and fewer such publications in established media, what we call like established stable traditional media that dominate on Russian media landscape. So most of those investigations and important stories come from small startups, niche publications, or sometimes even bloggers. I
2: mean you talked about the expression of government pressure, specifically on media, independent media companies and publications in Russia. But how, you know, I guess I'm asking the question because here we do hear of reports of journalists being harassed. Um, Very recently, there were reports of uh, a journalist being attacked in Russia, uh, Tanya Felgenauer. Oh, yeah. Um, And we hear these stories, I think, often um, in the West. But when you're in it, when you're there, and you're engaged in reporting and running the editorial of a major organization, an independent organization, how do you feel that pressure? Do you feel the pressure or the, the kinds of threats because these things are happening around you? Or is it that we hear about these cases here, and it seems like a regular occurrence, but in fact, it's not when you're there?
3: First, the higher position you have, the more pressure you have. Say, in well-organized media, the most of the pressure comes at management or at senior editor, and their goal is not to let this pressure to go down to specific uh, right. to editors be, to be the buffer. Yeah, to be a buffer. Yeah, to be a moderator, to be a smart person who sends different messages to the team, because you cannot limit journalists on their work. The moment you limit your journalists with their work, this is no journalism anymore. Because most journalists, they're the tuners, you know, they try to follow this signal, they try to understand where to collect this information, uh, what, what are the trends, where to go, you know, what to listen. And they do exactly the same in the company. So at the moment they understand it's something unfair. They stop working and they start following this rumors, trends, and so on and so forth. So the good editor is the editor who doesn't leak all these mm-hmm. uh, troubles to his or her team. But there are also another story, the second story. When it, it comes to physical aggression of some illegal groups or threats or... or this is another situation it's very hard to manage, especially if you work or you create small organization or you work for a small organization. And basically the story about Tatiana Filgingaro shows that there is no protection even in big organization because there is lack of security there are, there were two bodyguards well they didn't understand the, at the moment what that there is a trouble that the guy is strange. And so on. So uh, there were cases. It's it's hard to judge for me how specific those cases are for Russia compared to other, I would say, tough places for journalism compared to Turkey or China. Mm-hmm. I think there is something similar in situations w- with our countries. It's very ha- hard hard to protect your journalists from that, because it's random. You cannot have a bodyguard for everyone. And also there is, I think, what generates and what leads to increase of these cases, number of these cases, I think this is atmosphere of hate that is produced by mainstream TV channels that set up certain tone of voice in regard of independent journalists and people who disagree with mainstream politics. And this is a very scary trend because this propaganda activates the worst people and the worst ideas. It, it wakes up the things that normally are not normal. Mm. Uh, instead of saying Listen, guys. This is not normal. Uh, we shouldn't do that. It promotes the whole bunch of dark toolkits.
2: So yeah, Jana Nemtsova, I think shortly after her father's death, wrote this really compelling article, where she basically said that it was propaganda that she blamed for the death of her father in some ways, because it created this environment, this atmosphere, atmosphere of, of hate. hate, exactly,
3: exactly. But this is the same about Tatiana Fulginger and this is the same about other people because I mean every society has certain amount of mentally unstable people. The question is what signals you, you send to majority of population saying this is acceptable and this is this is not. Let's say if the government or people officials stand for, you know, protecting independent journalism as an institution, that's something completely different. They would set the rule. This is our healthy institution. We should, you know, protect this. But this is nothing uh, about that in uh, modern Russia. So I agree with Rana. That's a problem.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life what would you do with it would you go for a run would you sleep in would you read would you go hang out with a friend a lot of us spend time wishing we had more time you actually can create more time for yourself it's by figuring out what's important to you making that a priority and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com, slash Lawfare. Lawfare 20.
2: So given that there's this environment now, I think one question that people, experts, observers, people interested in understanding Russia better often ask is whether most Russians actually believe the state-sponsored propaganda. Because as you were saying, independent media, investigative journalism is really being done by relatively niche publications at this point And the majority of the information that the Russian population gets is state-controlled and state-sponsored. A lot of it is television. And many Russians still get most of their information from television. And I know you can't speak for the whole country, but what is your sense? I mean, are people reflecting on what they're hearing, understanding, being critical about it? Or is it really the fact that society is being transformed through this propaganda machine that the government has first and foremost aimed at its own population?
3: That's interesting that I don't have straightforward and simple answer. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, the answer is more complex. Yes, some of the people heavily influenced by propaganda, heavily. They are dependent on propaganda, and they are fueled by propaganda, and I think they are already obsessed with that, and they, they are addicted. But from another point of view, this is a very important number you have to know the audience of YouTube in Russia is over 50 million people.
2: And the that uh, of a population of 110 million? A population
3: million? is uh, 147. Internet access, so I think 70-plus million have internet access overall. And they're heavy internet users, including like my parents who use internet for um, searching for medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, or some simple things to buy, including heavy users who are addicted with Facebook or something of contact But why this number is important? Another important number is that uh, one of Alexei Navalny' uh, video investigations was watched by 30, almost 30 million people. Yeah.
2: You referred so, to this investigation about Medvedev. It was
3: about Medvedev. I'm not judging about fact-checking in this story. I'm not judging, I'm not, you know, discussing the importance of the story, and I'm not discussing even person of Alexei Navalny. I just want to say, don't tell me there is no press freedom in, in, in the country where 30 million people were able to watch investigation about prime minister, corrupt, uh, let's say, supposedly corrupted prime minister of the country and it still exists on YouTube so I'm just thinking that both government and older generation missed part of the audience and part of the population of Mm -hmm. of their own country I think none of them understands younger generation and what's the language the younger generation speaks between each other and also there are Enormous amount of other bloggers whose name are like kamikaze, Mm nimagia, whatever that means. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And they collect millions of views. And uh, there are only few uh, media people, not even organizations, people who are brave enough to experiment in this sphere because it's very as a person who tried my own video blog i have to admit that it hurts because uh, when you look at numbers and you compare it with like (laughs) new magia you think oh my gosh am i a professional journalist or i am too outdated and i don't know how to talk to the audience but we, as a journalist, we should reinvent ourselves and understand what our audience really needs and just not complain about censorship. Because there are a lot of ways to overcome and avoid censorship. In- there, there, there are social media. Mm-hmm. There is VK, uh, Which is VK, uh, VK yeah. v- VKontakte, uh, like a Russian version of Facebook. Mm-hmm. There is Instagram that has also a lot of, like, millions of users, there is YouTube, and so on and so forth, and we don't know what comes next, what is the next big thing. The whole Silicon Valley is just thinking every day about what comes next. Right. And Post-Snapchat. Post-Snapchat, exactly. And until we have YouTube free in Russia, this is one story. When and if, and I hope... It will not happen. It's shut down. That's a problem.
2: It does seem like very recently, in the last few months, the regime, the Kremlin, has woken up to the danger posed by these new media you're talking about. There's been, I think, a concerted effort to control the internet, which is proving to be difficult to do. But on the other hand, you know, there's recent moves by the government to try to shut down Navalny's YouTube channel. This, do you think that comes from a certain recognition or anxiety on the part of the government that they miss this audience and that this generation that should be, you know, this Putinist generation because they grew up primarily under Putin is actually getting away from them?
3: Uh, I'm not talking only about Navalny because sometimes you can find some protesting movies and videos even in this bloggers stories because... Sometimes they protest against a mayor, or governor, or insane actions taken by the government with something very specific. Or sometimes there are thousands of people who you know, protest against building construction or whatever. So, so I think it, those attempts to, to be a moderator in the web show a fear Mm-hmm. of the government that they're losing control over population because it was so simple between 2000 and let's say 2008 when you just make television a little louder <laughs> and and you and you get more you know more followers or you have bigger percentage voting for a certain you know governor or the president
2: Uh, So I think one great example where you're talking about how these viral YouTube videos become an expression of people's grievances about the regime is um, the video that came out recently in January that showed these young Russian cadets in the airport transport school doing a spoof of uh, Satisfaction, which was this electronic video by a famous DJ. And then what happened next? set the context for this and why did it become so viral?
3: Someone from local authorities or this institution authority or cadet you know the the academy academy decided just to exclude them from this academy to punish them for this small actually funny video clipping and what happened instead of that teenagers in other organizations started supporting them doing the same video. And then teenagers in the sports schools started supporting them. And then middle-aged people started supporting them. And then two not very fancy-looking ladies in their late 60s started supporting them. And by and supporting it, it, them, they started producing their own And started producing videos. them, yeah, the same, the same short video. And finally, what this academy should do to stop just stop it and they just gave up and also uh, there are some examples of the same type reaction of the of the power in more serious cases for example have you heard about this medical doctor Mizurina case hmm. she's a hematologist and she was accused in the patient death but it was obviously unfair decision. Prosecutors started case against her, criminal case, and she was sent to jail at some point for two years. But she was known as outstanding doctor, and she started, in the particular hospital, she started a bone marrow transportation department that is very important in Russia because there is lack of this surgery. So that people, and it started with journalism, and we, we basically we granted the journalist who started this story to made it first time public and just uh, meticulously explained what happened and that it was unfair, and there were not enough evidence that she made mistake because she just made a simple puncture of the bone marrow, and the case said. That, that caused the, the death of the patient. But this is like almost physically uh, mm-hmm. impossible. Uh, impossible. So one media published the story. Then another media published the story. Then there were, you know, hundreds of them publishing the story. And people started protesting. And finally she was released from prison. And mm-hmm. there was such a significant human right movement that was not organized by anyone except just uh, initiative, people initiative. That's great. And it says that although media far not free, they are still able to do a lot of things in this sphere of human rights.
2: And then the authorities still respond to this kind of pressure is the interesting part to me.
3: I detected that authorities actually respond to that when they feel threat. When they feel threat, that people start organizing a significant group. And when they answer, people answer injustice. I think Russian people have very strong feeling of injustice. And authorities, you know, they step back in these cases. Maybe this is before elections. Maybe this is because they, they want to keep stability, overall stability. They still manage the, the crowd I mean, not in the way as Stalin's regime, when there was only one way of managing the society, just to, to punish and to frighten and suppress. Today's power tries to, to listen carefully and not to give initiative to opposition, you know. Not people like Navalny to lead the protest, because mm-hmm. they, they're really afraid of protest.
2: Yeah, it's almost as if the regime at the local level as well as at the national level is constantly playing this balancing game of, you know, giving in a little bit but not too much, repressing a little bit but not too much, because there's this constant fear that if you go a little too far, that this feeling of injustice you describe will lead to something more profound and more of a social movement or protest movement, which is the greatest fear that the regime regime seems to have about its own stability.
3: In a certain way, this is learning by doing technique, because I think authorities made a lot of mistakes.
2: You know, I want to go back to the comment you made early in the conversation about how it was really the reporting on the Panama Papers that was sort of the last draw for the investigative journalist at RBC, and that was also when you went to Stanford as well, and other journalists had to leave RBC at that time, which was 2016. We had Andrei Soldatov on the podcast, and he talked about the Panama Papers, saying that they got too close to Putin himself, and according to Soldatov anyways, he speculated that it was really the Panama Papers that contribute to Putin's decision to later interfere in the U.S. elections because he saw the Panama Papers as this plot, like a Western-driven U.S. plot to try to undermine him and that the notion, quiet understanding in Russia, that you don't touch Putin, right? That you don't touch his wealth and you don't touch his family and if you get too close, there's going to be a price to pay, whether that be your organization gets shut down or you're, you fear for your life and you just leave or if you're an oligarch, you're forced to sell your assets or face jail time, right? Do you agree with this uh, given the experience that you had at RBC and your reporting in the Panama Papers that led to you having to leave and others having to leave as well? So it's always
3: very hard to say what is really in Putin's head. Of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so that's why I try not to state that I know exactly why. I wish I would know. But I have opinion that first the administration, not only Putin, but administration, like people around Putin too, considered Panama Papers as a punch against Putin personally. It was not, For them it was not a story about President of Azerbaijan, Prime Minister of Iceland, For them, it was clear focus on Putin. Also, I think in in their impression, this storage of information only could be leaked with the help of the government, any government, I don't know which government, but they don't believe in uh, traditional old-fashioned journalism. They don't believe in thorough, meticulous digging into numbers, facts and so on and so forth. They only believe in leak. Another thing is that they might think there was a certain state finance behind some organizations that released Panama Papers. This is a a red flag for the Kremlin. So they immediately connect money that came from the state with journalism that they don't consider as independent institution Mm -hmm. at all. And they put it together, uh, they have a script of foreign government affecting personally Putin. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. that I'm trying to explain, uh, I'm not saying I know exactly what happened, but I, I'm trying to explain the mindset. This is a way how they could think. Talking about personally Putin, I agree with you that He's very sensitive to any issues regarding his family, and especially his kids. I'm personally surprised how strong is this reaction. This is the issue, definitely. But the story that came out in Panama Papers, it had nothing to do with his kids. It had something to do with his close friend, Sergei Mm -hmm. Roldugin, who was mentioned in the Putin's memorial story that he told when he was just elected in 2000. So Sergei Roldugin appeared, I don't know, maybe in the 30% of this book as one of the closest friends of Putin' youth. So that's why the story was so significant. Well, I think it's still different for him with his family and with himself.
2: So you are now at UC Berkeley's School of Journalism where you started this new project, The Bell. Why did you decide to start it from the United States? So who are you trying to reach with this new news source? Well, there are some uh,
3: obvious reasons. First, English is the only foreign language I speak. (laughs) I don't know German or I don't know Japanese or I don't know Chinese then united states is a very comfortable destination in terms of doing business and silicon valley is also a place where you can learn a lot so bay area is uh, a place where it's worth to spend certain part of your life and also i saw a lot of interest of russian people coming to silicon valley to learn about technology about both technology as a technology and technology of doing business: how to invent new things, how to develop startups, how to understand your customers. This is a very entrepreneurial place. Unfortunately, this flow has reduced with visa situation, but it gives a lot of opportunities for media to provide this information. So. What I'm trying to do, besides many other things with the bell, is to fulfill this gap of information gap that appeared from uh, confrontation between Russia and the West. Also, I think there is a historical high of interest to Russian matters, Russia-related matters in the United States. So if you search Google, uh, look at Google Analytics and put Russia you analyze this statistic, you, you just see the graph. It's very, you know, sharp increase in this interest. And I think this is a very right place and right time to be, especially in, for a journalist to observe these changes. And we are trying to pick the most important things that happened in Russia previous week, And to summarize it in a way in which Western and global audience can consume it. And also maybe it's hard to follow Russian matters on a daily basis because it's too crowded in the Mm -hmm. room now. And there are a lot of information that comes from major mainstream publication in the United States. But what is missing here is Russian view. Mm
1: -hmm. So
3: most information about Russia... The mainstream major publications come from Washington or Intel community, but not from domestic, from the ground. There are some objective reasons for that, especially that Russian authorities don't communicate well with Western and local media. Mm -hmm. But at least our unique thing that we can give this Russian perspective on things.
2: An independent Russian perspective. An
3: independent Russian perspective, yeah. So I call it for myself, true Russia today.
2: <laughs> I like that. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, for the thank podcast. you for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you haven't yet, please share the Lawfare Podcast on Facebook, tweet about it, share it on Telegram channel, and give it a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to us. Our music, as always, is performed by Sophia Yan. I'm Alina Poyakova. Thanks for listening.